Hello, Vishwam Heckert, and welcome to Everyday Anarchism. Thank you, Graham. It's great to be here. Uh, Vishwam, I've been interested in your in your work and your ideas for a while. I just wanted to, to provide a little context to listeners. I mean, I did an episode on Jesus of Nazareth very early on in, in my journey. You know, in keeping with, I like to call everyday anarchism, I like to have a, a broader sense of what we might think of as anarchism or anarchy. I'm, I'm very informed or interested in the way that there are traditions that far predate, you know, the Western political discourse that anarchism arises in. I, I, I think I need to do episodes certainly on Lao Tzu and Chong Tzu. And I know that uh, I had a guest, uh, Jaglin O'Donnell, to talk about Oscar Wilde and Wilde wrote extensively on Taoism. Uh, there's people who link uh, Heraclitus and and Zeno with this sort of tradition. Kropotkin, I know, does Zeno, and then you're here today to tell us about sacred anarchy and 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 how you got there. So why don't you just go go right ahead? Okay, thank you, Graham. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have this. I think broader awareness of uh, you know the possibilities for liberation. Um, beyond what we might think of as as purely political, um, because of course real life isn't divided into neat little boxes of here's politics and here's economics and here's spirituality and here's your home life and here's your diet and here's this and that. Huh? It's life is one amazing unified existence. Um, so my own uh, path, in a way, has been it's been quite interesting. Maybe hopefully to listeners. Um, I grew up in a really small village in, in Iowa, um, where, uh, we were taught that the only possibility is to be Christian in a very particular way, <laughs> which never really interested me because the teaching seemed to be that both God is love. And unless you follow the rules, you're down to hell. And that didn't sound like love to me. Um, it sounded like a, a grumpy judgmental father in the sky. And I had one of those at home, so I didn't really feel like I needed another one <laughs> in the sky. Huh? Um, and, and that was just the smallest part of Iowa culture that didn't make any sense to me. So I never understood gender divisions and class hierarchies and why bread and stamps cost a little more every year. No one could explain these things to me. Um, so I was very keen to find uh, answers. And because I had a strong intellect, and because I didn't feel very secure in other parts of life, I focused a lot on that. I thought maybe my intellect will give me the answers. So I dedicated myself to a life of the mind. Uh, and I went off to Grinnell College. Um, I thought I was going to study environmental science and save the world with the power of my mind. <laughs> Discovered that uh, uh, university calculus is much harder than high school pre-calculus. And, uh, <laughs> had to drop chemistry, switch to psychology, thinking, well, if I can't save the whole world, maybe I can save myself. Um, thinking that if I master psychology, I will understand my own mind. It didn't work. <laughs> so, so then I thought, well, let's try again. So I went off to do a PhD in Edinburgh uh, in sociology. Um, and my initial plan was to understand gender as a system of social control, you know, in general. I was wisely told that's a bit broad for a PhD subject <laughs> and, uh, and narrowed it down to trying to understand an alternative 
uh, method for the politics of sexuality because I saw that identity politics really wasn't working. The idea that there's an us who are LGBTQIA, NB, et cetera, um, and a them who are straight and normal and having a great time. And if only the law recognized us as equals, then things would be fine. And of course, that doesn't recognize all the other intersecting hierarchies and problems. And it also leads to a whole lot of policing around identities. Um, so I wanted to find an alternative and I thought to do that, I need to hear, I need to understand what sexual orientation really is. And so I interviewed people in mixed identity relationships, queer, straight, gay, bi, used to be a bit like this, now a bit like that. My boyfriend says he, he's, he's pretty much straight, but he, he would kiss George Clooney. Do we count? You know, anybody had a, a kind of um, interesting narrative. Um, and I, I wasn't intending to write an anarchist PhD, um, but I was very interested in anarchism. I was involved in local uh, community social center, organizing events and things, but I, I kind of thought of it as a separate. Um, but I came across um, the political philosophy of post-structuralist anarchism, which won't be everyone's bedtime reading, but I kind of enjoyed it at the time. Uh, and it pointed out that uh, the thing that really stuck with me was the Deleuzean idea that the state isn't just an institution, it's a, um, it's a pattern that's defined by uh, putting things into boxes and judging them in terms of those boxes. And I was like, oh, hello, the sexual orientation is a perfect example of that. And all the people I was interviewing, or many of them told stories about being expected to be gay in a certain way or lesbian or bi or whatever. And then when their life didn't really fit the box, they got a lot of harassment. And that wasn't coming from any external institution that was coming from everyday social relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, and what was also interesting then was the ways that people supported each other and, and the way they found inspiration in themselves to, to not get pulled into all that, not feeling like they had to stay that, finding their own way of living. And I thought, oh, that's what the anarchist movement is kind of trying to do, right? Support people to be empowered, to follow how we really want to live and relate together. Um, and lastly, what helped them, what I noticed was the combination of uh, imagination and compassion, really, uh, or imagination, wisdom, compassion, uh, really being able to listen to each other, to find insight and inspiration in life, to realize that the way we're told life has to be, like what, you know, what I grew up with, there's the world is like this, I'm like, well, is it? Um, and and enjoying it huh? so through that process i came to define anarchy as the art of relating freely as equals and i like that definition because it helps us move beyond the whole individual individualist versus social anarchist it's like no if we look at the relationship as the basic building block of society um, it's the space between us that make structures appear the way they are. And it's our relationships that shape uh, our sense of social life. Um, and so focusing on that as a, 
as a, um, a center for anarchism is a decentralized center, which is always good. That's very Deleuzian as well. Is it? Oh, good. Okay. I, you know, I, I can't, I can't read that stuff anymore, really, but, <laughs> but it, and, and it also then covers anything, right? So it helps us so we can see why anarchism quite happily includes, uh, you know, environmentalism or animal rights or feminism or queer theory or racial hierarchies, because they're all about relationships. How are we relating? Um, but I saw that I, wasn't really able to relate freely as equals, even though I'd worked it all out very carefully in my mind. <laughs> Aha. And in fact, when I finished my PhD, I got really depressed for, you know, a year or two. Um, because I put all my eggs in that basket. I was trying to work out everything with my mind. Um, and I, when I look back now, I see my, my thesis is a hundred thousand word long prayer asking, you know, who am I and how do I be free? And I'm told it was very clever <laughs> and, you know, original and interesting. And people have told me they found it helpful in their personal lives, which is great, but it, it didn't give me the depth of what I was looking for. Um, and actually throughout my PhD years, I was also practicing yoga. Um, but very much a, phys a purely physical form, or I thought purely physical, <laughs> except I, uh, and I kind of had to do that because of the disability that arose while I was writing my first conference presentation. I suddenly wasn't able to use my arms. They felt like they were on fire. The nerves had been shortened from years of hunching protectively, um, trauma, basically physical and emotional trauma. Um, which isn't talked a lot about in anarchist politics, but the relationship between trauma and hierarchy, I think is very interesting. Maybe we can come back to that. Um, so one of the things I found very interesting was I noticed that the, my writing became much more fluid and poetic with the yoga practice. And I, I saw somehow that all these, this bending and twisting and moving my body in different ways was affecting my mind. Which of course, you know, that's feminism 101, the mind and the body are, you know, interconnected and it's all um, unified. But I had, it was really interesting to experience it directly. And so when I finished my PhD and got depressed and then moved to a town where I didn't know anyone and no one knew who I was and I didn't know who I was and I didn't know how to be free, uh, I thought I need a different kind of yoga. Um, so I went along to a class. And, you know, wasn't sure about it. It was very different from what I was used to. There were lots of funny breathing practices. There was a picture of some guy with a beard and incense. <laughs> the teacher was hugging all his students and they were chanting in Sanskrit. And I was like, what have I got into? Um, but I felt amazing afterwards. So I kept going back. And I was, you know, watching the teacher and noticing how much more relaxed he seemed to be about gender and things. And um connecting with people and didn't take himself too seriously um i was like do you know i think this might be a, a practice of freedom i think this might be the sort of thing foucault was talking about um and you know in like your episode in emma goldman she was also saying freedom isn't something you demand or fight for it's something you have to live it's living our lives right um and practice so we get the skills not just sitting at a desk thinking about it <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and you know, the, the irony I saw of like sitting at a computer for hours and hours writing about sexual liberation and my pelvis seizing up because I was spending so long on the computer. <laughs> you know, so I'm, so the, the yoga really made me aware of, of my body in a way that I had um, learned to not be aware of it. And in fact, um, in my viva, they asked why I didn't even talk about the theory of the body. I didn't want to. <laughs> I didn't even want to talk about the philosophy of the body because I was so alienated from my physical existence on earth because it was that heart. And I think that's pretty common, but we can't really heal the world and ourselves and create those kinds of social relationships we would like to have if we don't have a good relationship with our own body. And this is one of the ways that yoga is so helpful, I think, for social transformation and as a contributor to anarchism. Um, you know, if, if we are against exploitation, against some uh, parts of society pushing around other parts of society, uh, and if, if the opposite of the anarchist uh, critique of representation, the indignity of uh, speaking for others, is we might say the dignity of listening. How many of us listen to our own bodies and listen to what the body wants and honor that? And how many of us get in the habit of pushing our body around and then complaining that it doesn't do what we want it to do? Mm. So I think revolution starts at home, really. You know, in our in our own relationship with our body and our mind and our whole experience of life. Yeah, <laughs> this is. I mean, this is just wonderful. By all means, keep keep going. If you if you're if you've got more, please. I I do I do. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean I don't have. I mean I have at this point nothing to add. I'm enjoying listening. Okay. Okay. Thank you, Graham. So the other. Um, Another element of, of, of yoga is meditation. And I've, I found myself discovering how helpful meditation is for understanding the mind, uh, especially when we meditate in the heart. So if that idea that the, you know, in um, Landauer said this as well, that state isn't an institution, it's a, a way of relating. Uh, so it wasn't, I didn't come up with it all by myself. <laughs> no. Um, but of course, our, our way of relating is, is affected by our state of consciousness. Um, and I found out studying psychology that trying to work out my own mind with my mind didn't really get me very far. But when, uh, when awareness rests in the heart, uh, the spiritual heart that all traditions talk about, then it, the awareness of the mind naturally uh, comes. We start to see things, our patterns in ourselves that we hadn't noticed were there. And there's uh, compassion for that. So instead of always pointing fingers at other people, they're the hierarchs, that's the state, those are the capitalists. I'm one of the good guys, thank you, in this movie. <laughs> and I'm going to use all my powers to stop the bad guys. Um, it's kind of going, oh, wait, look what I've been doing too. Okay. Uh, let's, let's focus on another way of 
of practicing another way of being, a counter practice, so that the system of the mind and the body over time learns to relate in a more kind and compassionate and loving and equal way. Um, so I know that a lot of anarchists would disagree with that, say, well, that sounds nice, but first we've got to win the fight. Yeah, um, they would. They they would. I don't disagree with you, though. Yeah. Well, for those folk, um, you know, I'd like to say, uh, in case it's helpful, that we might ask what what it is that we're fighting against, and if we're if we're fighting. Um, you know, a state of consciousness. If someone's caught up in the idea that the only way they can be okay is if they're controlling other people, or caught up in the idea that they have to be superior to be okay, we might just stop and check to see if we have any elements of that in ourselves first. And I've become very aware <laughs> that I have tremendous capacities in those directions. <laughs> Huh? You know, I like like everyone who's listening to this probably, I was raised in a hierarchical, patriarchal, etc. culture. And I was told that in many ways I was inferior, and also that in some ways I was superior. And as I said at the beginning, I grasped onto the ones where I was told I was superior <laughs> and tried to get all I could out of them. I have a great intellect. Great. We'll go with that. <laughs> forget the body. Forget, you know, other things that are hard. I'll go with that one. Um, and, uh, you know, and then the same thing happened, you know, going into spiritual practice. I found myself thinking of myself as superior to people who didn't have a spiritual practice or didn't seem to or whatever, right? So our minds can generate all this stuff. We could feel superior to those who believe in capitalism. Right, so we're, it's very easy to create new hierarchies and to identify with hierarchy. And in fact, I would say that even fighting against hierarchy is identifying with it in a way. That's not to say we just sit around and do nothing. I'm not saying we just you know, do yoga and meditate. There are also ways to take action. But if we want the action to be direct, and we want to make sure it's not bouncing off of all kinds of conditioning in our minds that we've picked up over the years. So let me spell that out a little more. So the anarchist critique of representation is not just the problem with some people speaking for others. It's also the problem of being told or that reality is a certain way and that to be realistic there's some ways to act and some ways not to act according to an idea of reality. And this is really obviously very political, right? We're presented this idea of reality and we're told to be realistic. And the anarchists have always said, well, they like to say what demands the impossible. Um, be realistic, demand the impossible, right? <laughs> I prefer to say invite the impossible. It seems a bit more gentle to me and more open-ended. Uh, um, but what if our own mind isn't showing us reality as it is? 
What if it's showing us through a filter of all our expectations, our beliefs, our experiences, trauma that we carry? Um, then how can we act in a direct way? Uh, if we're reacting to our impression, our mental representation of reality, is it direct action? Uh, because I think what's usually called direct action is the most exciting kind. <laughs> uh, we feel like we're in a great movie, it's good versus evil, and we're going to win. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I bow down to everyone who's, you know, put themselves on the line for what they believe in. Uh, um, and I know so many people who've burnt out because it didn't work in the way they wanted it to. And so, um, so I'd like to, you know, look at why that doesn't work or hasn't worked in the way we might like it to and what might be more effective to try another way. Because probably we've all been to um, events where we've heard the same narrative repeated. This is how anarchism is supposed to work. And then kind of, well, but it's not quite working, is it? <laughs> or it's working a little bit for some people, but could we broaden that? Could we deepen it? Can we explore? Can we, you know, what was that conference renewing the anarchist tradition? How do we keep it new and vibrant and alive? And I think part of it is, as you're saying, is tracing back to the ancient heritage of anarchy and the wisdom that's uh, long-standing and established and proven. Um, so, you know, yoga, for example, is practiced by millions of people around the world and has been practiced for thousands of years because people find some great benefit to it. And part of that benefit is clearing of the mental patterns that stop us from seeing life um, more directly. And it, the way we move our bodies helps to, can help to release trauma and help us be better able to relate with others in a healthy, vibrant, egalitarian, loving, joyful way. And when we shift our patterns of relationships, the structures that are made up of those relationships must necessarily change. Now, of course, there'll be those within those structures and institutions which are trying to avoid the change, and that's fine. We don't need to turn them into an enemy necessarily. Um, it's a long process. And if we're able to stay very centered ourselves, very present and clear and open, then the possibility of change in others um, is supported. And just to give an example of that, which probably won't seem political right away, but maybe I can explain. Um, I used to work as a massage therapist in a chiropractor clinic. And I heard a woman, I was on my break, and I heard a woman come in um, and she, she had some issue with parking or something. Her voice was very high and very agitated and very fast. And I found myself kind of wanting to leave my body to like get out of there because it was, it was the kind of the sound of like a mother in distress. And our, as a child, it's not, if your mom's freaking out, not safe, then you might think, oh, maybe I'm not safe either. Right? A 
lot of men can't be around women who are getting, uh, having strong emotions, right? But I noticed I didn't leave. I somehow couldn't this time. It just didn't happen. I was like, oh, that's interesting because I hadn't even realized that I would normally do that. Um, and she must have, I, I swear, she felt it because she booked in for a massage with me. She didn't even, didn't even meet me, but she could feel that steadiness. Someone who was able to be there with her to help her relax uh, her nervous system with all that it was carrying. And I think we all uh, need that. Someone who's able to be steady for us and help us know that things are on one level okay so that we can heal and then we can pass that healing on, help it spread through the world. Um, because it seems to me that trauma is both the cause and effect of hierarchy. When we, you know, if we, if we, if we trace all the problems in uh, America and many parts of the world back to the British Empire, and then the British Empire learned from the Roman Empire and who conquered the Romans. And my, my yoga teacher, who's an interesting woman, she traced it back, she said like 12,000 years, you know, empire after empire after empire, which is tremendous intergenerational trauma because being conquered is, you know, obviously not a nice experience um, and coerced into a particular way of life. And our nervous systems hold on to that and. If, if we look at the basic um, resp stress responses in the nervous system, they're fight, flight, freeze, and fawn. So fawn is, you know, making big eyes and saying, oh, please like me. Uh, I want everyone to love me. Um, and all of those are, are different uh, ways of enabling inequality. Yeah. If you're fighting, you're either, there's a winner or there's a loser. If you're running away, you're letting someone else control the situation. Yeah? If you freeze, you're not speaking up when things are a mess. You meet lots of people in hierarchical institutions. They all know it's a mess, but they're afraid to say anything. Yeah? Um, and fun, you know, getting people to like you, please love me. Um, well, we can, we can, we know what kind of exploitation that leads to, especially in gender dynamics. And so when we can help our system um, get out of being stuck in those patterns, which happens a lot when people have been through a lot, they can just get frozen in that. Being able to uh, retrain the nervous system to be open to uh, the other aspects of the capacity of healthy digestion, relaxation, good sleep, um, all the things that aren't essential to survival in the short term but in the long term are essential for ha happy, healthy, and egalitarian lives. And we can even look back, Emma Goldman was saying the same thing. In fact, I'm writing a little pamphlet about Emma Goldman and yoga right now, because she sounds like a yogi to me when I read her now. You know, she said, um, I could have looked up the quote, but it's, um, you know, so what all these things that are were being said in the name of human nature, we're being told that capitalism and government and all these things are just human nature. We just have to put up with it. Um, and she said, well, that's not fair. That's like saying an animal in a cage is that we're seeing the nature of the animal. And she said, the only way to really see 
human nature and all its great potential is through freedom or uh, through peace and repose. Peace and repose, huh? It's that steady, calm, open nervous system, mind, body experience, the healing of trauma that allows real human potential to shine. And that's when we begin to discover what might be really possible politically, economically, socially, ecologically, um, on all levels. And this, you know, ties in nicely with uh, what a lot of uh, anarchist feminists talk about fractal democracy. So a fractal is something where you zoom in or zoom out, it's the same kind of pattern. So if you've ever looked at Google Earth and you look at the you know, Earth from far away or river from far away and you zoom right in, the closer you get, you still see the same patterns. So the same goes for hierarchy. We've got hierarchy at the national level. You're going to feel it in global level. You're also going to find it in the interpersonal level and inside yourself. So if we want to have fractal anarchy, it's got to include the smallest level, what some people call nanopolitics. Huh? or even maybe even smaller than that, huh? our relationship with ourselves um, can change and heal. And it ties in really nicely with what Nathan June pointed out, that the um, in, in liberal philosophy, freedom and equality are kind of these tension opposites, and there's always a little you know, trade and swap. And in yoga, sorry, and in anarchism, they're the same. And it's vitality, uh, aliveness. How do we help ourselves really be vibrantly alive? It's not just through arguing that we're right and other people are wrong. It's not through sitting around thinking about things a lot. It's through moving and playing and nurturing ourselves and nurturing our relationships and enjoying life. Uh, and maybe just maybe that might attract more people to social movements if they're like that because <laughs> you know some of us some of us at some point in our life might sit at, like sitting around in a circle complaining that the world's not great and everyone's doing it wrong and we should try to make the revolution happen but most of us get bored with that after a while and move on and not that all you know anarchist meetings are like that i don't want that's that's you know <laughs> that's a cartoon caricature right but we've all been in those meetings i think um, and the, the the burnout rate of people who are actively involved in in protesting and activism is is as you say incredibly high. It is, it is, yeah. And we and we might see how that comes from a kind of unhealthy spirituality, the one that says we need to suffer. Huh? We need to suffer to impress something. We may not use the G word, <laughs> but, but something, huh? Or, you know, we might sac sacrificing ourselves for the movement, huh? Crucifying ourselves for the greater good, huh? And there's another spiritual path possible, huh? the path of joy, the path of the heart. And I think this is really where anarchism comes from. Well, so if we, you know, 
There's Graber and Wingrove. Wingrove, thank you. I remember the W. They, Graber and Wingrove, you know, their beautiful analysis and recognition of how indigenous North American traditions inspired the European movements. But of course, um, Emma Goldman read the Transcendentalists. The Transcendentalists read yogic scriptures. Um, yoga is a indigenous tradition, which is much older than Hinduism, um, which kind of got, you know, compressed into a standard form. Um, but the essence of it is still present. Um, and of course, Le Guin, inspired by Taoism, we all love Le Guin. Um, her rendition of the Tao Te Ching is, is beautiful um, and very inspiring. Um, and, and even even within the anarchist tradition, I know apparently Daruti didn't really say it himself, some journalists said it, but it's a gorgeous quote and we all love it. And maybe Daruti would have said it if he thought of it. We carry a new world in our hearts. He's not talking about the physical heart. He's not talking about the emotional heart. It's that place that's the center of our being that we touch when we're moved by something that we point to when we say who we are. If I say, hey, you, you don't say who me and point at your head. We don't live in our head. We might try to, but it's a very small space and quite repetitive. <laughs> but the heart is wide open and full of possibilities. And heart meditation is the easy way to find peace outside of the mind, uh, in the space beyond the mind. And I'm not surprised that a lot of anarchists are upset about spirituality because, you know, so many of us have experienced religious violence, basically, or abuse, um, being told that we'll go to hell or all that nonsense, which of course is the imperial reinterpretation of what Yeshua, his indigenous name, <laughs> what he said. Huh? And there, you know, there's even, um, I've been reading some of the Aramaic uh, the original, he's, he spoke in Aramaic, so there's some scholars looking back. Well, what, what, what if we read the Aramaic version of the Bible instead of King James? And there's like a bit in the King James Bible. It's like, how do you pray? Well, you go into your closet and you then go into the secret place and shut the door and, um, and pray. And it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And if you look at the Aramaic translation, it says, close the door to the mind and to the silence of the heart and be with the divine, be with the universe, be with the all that is, be with love itself, whatever word feels good for you, be with that. Huh? Because spirituality in its essence is an honoring of that which is greater than ourselves. And what else could anarchism possibly be? If we were just thinking our, we were so great, we wouldn't be interested in social change. We're focusing, you know, we're acknowledging the bigger picture, the ecosystem, social relations, maybe even beyond this planet or not, but it's something greater than ourselves. And there's a devotion that keeps bringing people back to these things. It keeps us drawn to nurturing social transformation. And I would call that 
uh, a, I would call that spirituality. I would call anarchism a spiritual tradition and a very beautiful one. And when we honor that and recognize it and work with it, then it can be an even more effective tradition, I believe, than if we try to keep it strictly to the economic and political realms that we imagine are separate from everything else, which of course is a patriarchal idea. Um, I was going to say, I don't know if you've heard of um, Ian McGilchrist. Mm -hmm. So he's, um, he's an interesting character. He lives in the Isle of Skye, and he's a, a philosopher and a neuro, um, kind of neurologically oriented psychiatrist um, with a strong background in literature. <laughs> um, and he does a lot of research on the hemispheres of the brain. Um, and, and not the kind of simplistic one we were told about that everyone that said that's not like that. Um, he's done really nuanced, careful research, um, looking at a lot of people who had strokes where they've lost access to one side or the other and noticed the, you know, the personality characteristics and all this. And he said in a very simple way, um, the left hemisphere of the brain tends to be very rational, analytical, um, problem solving and self-important. <laughs> uh, so we recognize that pattern. We could even call that the state uh, because it's always problem solving. It's always looking, seeing everything as a problem and therefore trying to think of itself as the one who fixes it. And the right hemisphere is much more mystical, poetic, um, holistic, expansive, curious, open. And he said, that's the side of the brain that's really supposed to be leading the show. It's supposed to be guiding the way. And then we've got these other skills available for when they're needed. Analysis is handy sometimes, but no one wants to live like that, right? But the problem is it's become a bit reversed. Our society has become so left brain dominant that everything's out of balance. And this ties in really beautifully with, uh, if you've heard of a woman called Pat McCabe, also known as Woman Stands Shining. Yes. Yeah. And her daughter's Lila June, who would be amazing to get on the show if you could, um, who's just finished her PhD on indigenous food systems and how uh, everybody was, you know, had plenty before colonialism. But anyway, back to her mom. Um, she has a, a talk on YouTube. Um, where she says, uh, she basically says to the audience, you've not been trained to see me. Um, and she talks about uh, an indigenous scholar who wrote a book called Indigenous Science. I've forgotten his name. And he said, you know, when the, when the colonizers came here, they saw our people as very childish and immature. And she said, I love him for this. Instead of just calling them racist, he said, oh, I wonder what it is about their culture that made them see us, made them see us that way. Huh? How wise and, and you know, open-hearted. Why did they do that? How did they get so confused? So he had a look. And he saw they were mostly you know, wealthy Englishmen who'd been told that up until the age of five, it's fine to play. You can sing and you can dance and you can have invisible friends and all that. Um, but once you get to five, 
you need to focus on your intellect. You need to be smart and you need to, you know, sit down and be obedient. Left hemisphere, huh? which I would argue is the effect of trauma from the colonialism that led to the colonialism. The colonizer has to be colonized first. The one who wants to control others has to be out of balance themselves so that they feel the need for control. There's nothing wrong with the need for control, but it does cause problems. And if we can unlearn it, that's a big relief for everybody. <laughs> huh? um, we've covered a lot there. <laughs> yeah, we, <laughs> we, we have. I mean, I hope everyone has has gone along with us. I mean, this is a very unusual episode, as the regular listeners will know for how little I have spoken, but I've just been I've just been in the flow as we as as we head towards the end of our time. Is there anything else you want to make sure you you share? Well if we really do value anarchy as and, are, and are, if we're happy with the definition of the art of relating freely as equals i mean i i just need to say i love i love this definition i mean when i first heard ruth kenna you know talking about non-domination i thought that was such an important way to mm. to to think about it and you know i think the art of of relating to others in in a way that's non-dominating that's that's as good a version of an what anarchy is as i can think of yeah, I mean it's interesting because our 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 mind isn't very good when we when we hear an, a negative word we tend yeah. to hear the word with it. So non-domination's always got the specter of domination, mm -hmm. which takes the fun out of it. I think. Yeah. So so I, so I like the art of relating freely as equals. Yeah. And you know, so it's been very clear that for for me, that's heart meditation and yoga and and things like that that develops my capacity to practice that art. Um. And my invitation to all the listeners is to notice for yourselves, what is it that helps you cultivate the art of relating freely as equals? Because every art takes practice and every artist is different. Huh? So what is it for you that helps you? And if you, know, if you haven't found something you might like to explore, try something a little outside your comfort zone, there could be something really wonderful that you've avoided because you've been too busy doing real politics <laughs> or whatever, you know? Um, and if I can be of help in any way, you know, um, please feel free to get in touch. Um, I was going to ask, I mean, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but I'm putting you on the spot. Do you want to do a, a, a breathing exercise here that, that people can listen to? Would that be, would that be a value to the listeners? Do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely. We certainly could. Well, if you're up for it, let's, let's do it. Yeah. Okay. So one of the, one of the things to know, we talked about the two sides of the nervous system. There's more than two sides, but two sides includes the, uh, you know, parasympathetic, which is um, relaxed and the sympathetic, which is fight or flight, etc. So when, uh, and the easiest way to shift that is through the breath. Yeah. So when we're anxious, we tend to breathe much more in the chest and have a quicker out breath to try to get more breath in again. Mm -hmm. 
So we've all seen kids, you know, who are very upset and the mama cheated me. And if you've ever seen a baby sleeping, if the baby's life is, you know, reasonably okay, then the belly just rises and falls. So if we're finding ourselves being anxious a lot of the time, we might want to retrain our breathing to focus in the belly, especially, uh, and to slow down the exhale. Now, as a kind of precursor to that, when we're really stressed, we tend to hold the belly muscles tight, which then restricts the breath to the chest, which makes us more anxious. So there's a lovely, not so lovely, sorry, yeah. feedback loop that happens. So what might be most helpful is starting with a practice called soft belly breathing to help the belly uh, be able to expand because it can't if it softens and, uh, and then life's really hard. Now we might think that protecting ourselves by keeping our abdominal muscles tight is a good move. We might feel safer if, our, if we're hard, right? And this is kind of the caricature of the anarchist as someone who's quite hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a, a biologist, uh, Bruce Lipton, who noticed that cells, and then by extension, whole organisms, uh, can either be in protection mode or growth mode, not both at the same time. We might say this is the difference between fear and love. And if we want to relate freely as equals, we can't do that from a place of fear. Fear is the foundation of the state of all inequality, all hierarchy, all domination, all that stuff that we don't like. So I would suggest that peace and love are actually very political, radical, (laughs) because they allow an alternative to all that stuff we don't like. So let's do a little soft belly breathing practice if you'd like that. And if you're not driving a car while you're listening to this podcast, (laughs) if you are, you can come back later and enjoy the last five or 10 minutes of the show. Okay. So if you're ready, if you're wearing glasses, I invite you to slip them off. It's always so relaxing when we take our glasses off at the end of the day, isn't it? And allowing the eyes to close. Or if it feels better, keeping them very slightly open and gazing down towards the floor. And just take a moment to become aware of the body at the level of sensation. Just noticing whatever sensations there may be in the body and allowing them all to be just as they are. Not trying to change or fix anything. In fact, if we welcome the sensations, they might even soften. Now becoming especially aware of sensation in the belly area, uh, below the navel, maybe around the waistband of the trouser area. Notice the sensation of the breath in this area. And notice any hardness, anything that's restricting the breath. It's there, it's okay. 
quite natural. Well, it's kind of learned. <laughs> yeah. And we can help it go. You can let every exhale release hardness. And every inhale brings softness into the belly. Breathing away hardness with every exhale and breathing in pure softness with every inhale. There's nothing else to do, nothing to get right, no jobs to do. Just welcoming pure softness with every in-breath and allowing hardness to flow away with every exhale. Allowing the belly to soften more and more with every breath. Diving deep through layers and layers of softening. Levels and levels of letting go. You might notice there's some hardness that wants to stay. That's all right. Don't need to harden against hardness. You can soften around it. Let it melt in its own time. In its own time. You might start to feel the boundaries of your body feeling a bit fuzzy. Expanding into a wider awareness of who you are, which is more than a body and more than a mind. Enjoying the flow of softness that flows with the breath. That breath which connects us with all life. The shared communal breath flowing through the body now, bringing softness to the belly. If you wish, you can let the softness rise to the solar plexus, that area where you might get a knot in your stomach sometimes. And letting that area soften too. Welcoming softness in the stomach area. Enjoying the softening here. And you might even find the softness wants to go up to the heart center, in the center of the chest in line with the armpits. You might find one hand wants to come and rest on your heart. And if you wish, you can do a little yogic science experiment and see what happens when you smile. For anyone new to smiling, it's lifting both corners of the mouth towards the ears at the same time and holding. 
And if you drop your chin just a little bit to smile to your own heart, you might feel it smile back to you. Now we can be good scientists and see what happens when we look serious, stern. Notice the effect. And watch as the smile comes back. Welcoming the smile back into your own heart. Felt in the body. Not imagined, not made up, not woo-woo. Something that's real and here and experiential. And a great support for anarchy. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much, Vishwam. Where where can people find you and find more? Uh, so my website is flowingwithlife.org. All right. Well, I'll, I'll have a link to that, and uh, and we will be in touch. Thank you. This was such a pleasure, Vishwam. Thank you, Graham. Thank you. It's a real honor to share this time with you. Thank you. Was, the honor was all mine. Can we share? Okay, we'll share, we'll share the honor. <laughs> As free, free and equal beings. I got that That's right. Good. I'm doing my best. Thank you, Vishwam.